Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul and Stuart, we're back. This Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How's life? Yeah. Life is good. So this, of course, is the Curbsiders. We're back with part two of our diarrhea. Uh, is this a? This is this is part two of our diarrhea series, which I try to call it crap I'm sliders. Sure. No one it didn't take though. It didn't stick. <laughs> Uh, right. So on the ep part one, if you haven't heard it yet, please go back and take a listen. We talked about acute diarrhea. Now we're going to be talking about the work of uh, chronic diarrhea with our returning guest, Dr. Chow Jing, Iris Wang, who is a fantastic guest. And before we hear all about her, Paul, can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on this show? Sure, it, it wouldn't be the curbsiders if I didn't tell you that this was the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Matt, you already set up set this up nicely, but I'm going to pass the mic to Dr. Elena Gibson, who produced this episode, who's going to tell us a little bit more about our incredible guest and about the topics that we discussed. Thank you. So if you didn't hear the first one, Dr. Iris Wang is an assistant professor of gastroenterology and hepatology at Mayo Clinic. Uh, she has clinical and research interests in functional GI disorders or disorders of the gut-brain axis. She also is an amateur baker on the weekends. And during this episode, we discuss chronic diarrhea, including the initial evaluation, red flags to look for that would prompt you to consider endoscopy workup, how to evaluate for functional bowel disorders, and then how to counsel patients on dietary changes. It really flows well. <laughs> I love it how you just <laughs> I think you just preempted Stuart I love it All Let's, right, let's get to the episode yeah. Well I've got lots of puns but just like chronic diarrhea I'm going to try to hold it in because once it starts it just never stops <laughs> Nope, I just, nope. The empty Is that a special effect? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, I hit my mic <sighs> Um do we want to talk about somebody else who's having longer-term diarrhea? I feel like we do. I think so. Are you talking I about agree. Mrs. Stilla Watery? Oh, yes. <laughs> Please tell us more, Elena. <laughs> so she is a 43-year-old female. She has a history of hypothyroidism. She's on some levothyroxine. She also has a history of type 1 diabetes. She's had it since she was about 15. And she's coming to you with a three-month history of non-bloody diarrhea. She describes three to four loose bowel movements daily. She describes them as sticky, and she says they're painless. So thinking through how to work up chronic diarrhea, how would you categorize the, the etiologies of chronic diarrhea? So I, I want to make just one quick note about acute diarrhea, right? Chronic diarrhea has to start somewhere. So when you're working up your acute diarrhea, you always have to keep in mind all the etiologies of chronic diarrhea in case it doesn't stop. So just just kind of you know, like you can't really separate that. So chronic diarrhea, you've seen a lot of algorithms, uh, you know, osmotic versus secretory, inflammatory versus non-inflammatory, motility, absorption, whatever. It kind of doesn't matter. Like it, it matters in an academic sense when you really need to categorize it. And it's almost like 
it's great for a board exam. It's but sometimes it's not necessary to really say, oh man, this is really osmotic or secretory because there's so much overlap and it's actually so complex that usually these etiologies span the categories. And so I like to think about, is it osmotic or not? Because osmotic diarrhea is actually quite clear. And then it just kind of becomes a little bit messy when you start talking about secretory or inflammatory because you do the same thing. So thinking about osmotic diarrhea, right? You, you kind of want to think about, is there an osmotic gap or not? And we do you want to talk about that now? Talk about that later? Yeah. How, how are you going to tell if there is a gap or not? Yeah. So let's talk about the stool osmotic gap. So this is where the, these stool tests sometimes do come in handy. But the first question to always ask your patient when you're evaluating for chronic diarrhea to kind of make that differentiation is what happens when you stop eating? If the diarrhea resolves in, when they're fasting, it's something they're eating, right? It's osmotic. It's something that they are ingesting that is inducing that diarrhea because otherwise it shouldn't go away. You can kind of think about the functional diarrheas like that as well, but even like IBS will not go away if they're fasting. It might get worse if they eat, but it won't go away. So a true osmotic diarrhea resolves with fasting. So that's the first question I'm going to ask them. And then if I'm going to work it up, then you send the stool osm test, which is really just stool electrolytes, right? We very rarely actually send stool osmolality. And I, I don't know if you want me to get into why. Uh, it's just not an accurate test. Um, mm. Because it, in order for it to be accurate, you have to literally take that stool and get it to the lab ASAP before any of the stool bacteria have right. any chance of fermenting anything. And, and as we know, the stool sits there in the refrigerator for two days before they bring it in. Exactly, exactly. And even in an inpatient setting, like who's going to transport that stool fast enough before bacteria get at it, right? Like you just, it's just not necessary unless, and the only indication would be if you're, considering factitious diarrhea, which I, I think we should just not get into. So the stool osm gap, and th this is really important to understand only because every board question, like every board exam, like asks you about the stool osmotic gap. So the, the way that I've been taught this is, is the function of the bowel from the, the duodenum to the colon is to maintain an osmolality that of serum. Okay, so the goal of your GI tract in absorbing water is to make sure that your stool osms equals your serum osms. And so when you're looking for that, uh, so, so your serum osm, osmolality is going to be 290. And so if your stool osms, measurable kind of uh, things that are supposed to be in stool, the sodium, the potassium, and the anions that go with that, do not add up to close enough to 290, then there's some unmeasured component that's making that up. And there's some nice charts to like visualize this uh, because it, it took me forever to like kind of wrap my mind around this. But just remember, there's something else in the stool that's unmeasured and that's your whatever's causing your osmotic diarrhea. Sorry, I got, I got kind of sidetracked. But categorizing chronic diarrhea. So then if it's not osmotic, right, it's usually some sort of secretory diarrhea then. So if there's not an unmeasured osm, then there's too much of your measurable osms, and then water goes along with those. And then the question is, what is secreting? Is it an infectious etiology that's triggering more secretion or decreasing your absorptive capacity? Is it inflammation? Because inflammatory diarrhea is actually a secretory diarrhea, right? It's because you cannot absorb. 
is it blood? Is it pus? Is it fat in the stool that is preventing you from absorbing? Is it bile acids, which is going to be kind of important, much more important in our workup of chronic diarrhea? Yeah. And then once you kind of think about that, then you wonder about, is there a motility issue, right? Is, is the stool just moving too quickly? And so that's why there's not enough absorption happening. And then lastly, you get to this IBS or, or functional diarrhea, where all of the testing you are able to do is normal, but they meet this Rome 4 criteria for a functional disorder, or a, now we call it disorders of the gut-brain axis. I don't know if you, if you knew we changed the name on that one but they are no longer functional GI disorders. Oh, they're uh, really disorders of the gut brain axis. Yeah. Is there an acronym for that? D yeah. It's like DBGA, which really just flows off the tongue as well as FGID did. <laughs> which is still better than like dogba, which is not, that's <laughs> like, that's not great. <laughs> okay. With the, uh, so with the stool osmotic gap, so we're doing essentially the formula it's what 290 minus two times sodium plus potassium. Is that the exactly? And it's yep. just a it's a random sample. Like they just poop yep. in a cup, bring it in, yep. and and you ch you check the sodium potassium and and that's it. Yep. It's not in a cup. It's in a toilet hat. It's in a toilet hat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And sometimes it's freeze dried so that it just maintains freshness. I was gonna say something. Oh man, totally lost it. I'm, I'm so sorry. sorry. What? No, no. Oh, the stool osm gap. So less than 50, right? If the gap is less than 50, that's within normal. And so that's considered a secretory diarrhea. If it's greater than 100, there's some sort of unmeasured osm. Okay. And what would the unmeasured osms be? Yeah. So, so then, then we go down our differential of what causes osmotic diarrhea, which is great. Um, often you think about kind of uh, surreptitious or accidental. I don't want to say surreptitious, right? Because that, that kind of implies that the patient's doing it on purpose. But really, often it's accidental ingestion of laxatives, particularly magnesium-based laxatives, which tend to be in like a lot of natural supplements. So like that calm all to help sleep is magnesium-based. So a lot of people right. use it to sleep and then it gives them diarrhea. The other things can be like uh, unmeasured anions, even like phosphorus, right? We use phosphorus a lot in our, our preps and our colon preps because they're unabsorbed. The other thing to go along. So if you do have that osmotic gap, this is when you might want to think about measuring a stool pH. Because if, the, if there's unmeasured osms and the stool pH is less than six, it actually indicates that there's some sort of carbohydrate malabsorption that's contributing to your unmeasured osms. The reason that pH gets low is because that carbohydrate ends up in your colon when it's unmeasured and then the bacteria ferment it and that drives down your stool pH. So that that's kind of where that stool pH fits in on the algorithm. The other, sorry, other unmeasured osms to consider are the sugar alcohols that a lot of our patients consume. And so um, when we walk into a room uh, consulting on a patient with diarrhea and they have a bag of like hard candy sitting there, uh, usually there's some sort of like sugar alcohol in there that's Pre precipitating or perpetuating whatever diarrhea they had to begin with. That's helpful. Do you guys remember those? It was like gummy bear. Reviews? Oh yeah, yeah. the <laughs> The sugar free gummy bear that was like a <laughs> that was a prank going around for a little while. So we we have I have to tell the story. We have this consultant um, when I was a fellow who who taught us the like uh, the goal of the um, the GI tract is to maintain the os osmolarity that of serum. When he gives that talk, he hands out 
gummy bears, like sugar-free gummy worms (laughs) at the beginning of the talk and make sure that like everybody takes one. And then he tells us all like what happened because he gave us all this fruit toast. (laughs) That's evil. He's never going to listen to this so I can talk about it. (laughs) Fructose. Is it really fructose and sugar? That was super low. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it is. A fructose can be oh. metabolized by the fructase in the brush so, border enzymes. So about that. <laughs> so about that. Uh, so fructose is actually, oh my God, sorry. You might need to cut this out. I'm going to nerd out a little bit. Most So glucose is, is transported and our single sugars are transported across the brush border by these glut transporters, right? So most of them are facilitative transporters. Fructose is a diffusion transporter. And so fructose, when you give it with glucose, can be facilitated. But fructose in excess of glucose needs to go through its own transporter, and that is only diffusion capacity. Mm. And so you can overwhelm that transporter. And so if you eat enough fructose in excess of glucose, Mm. you get diarrhea because of the fructose, even though you can't absorb it. Gotcha. Sorry. Had to. Can I can I ask about uh so so we're talking about I have some questions. I definitely want to talk about FODMAP and I want to talk about brat diet. Like I, I want to talk about some of the like the the dietary things that go along with this. Maybe now is the time, maybe not, because you know, you're talking about fructose. I'm not sure if that's why apple juice I find it funny that apple juice is yeah. always listed as like a bad yeah. offender, but then yeah. it's also part of the brat diet, which is like what you tell people to eat. Or what, what that's like the kind of like the thing that like my mom would be like, oh, yeah, you got to eat a brat diet when you have diarrhea, bread, rice, a- apples and toast. But that that doesn't really seem to make sense, because if you look at the FODMAP stuff, th- those don't two don't really mesh together. I have a lot of thoughts about the FODMAP diet. <laughs> okay. They're, they're, they're kind of like polarizing thoughts, but um, I, I did write a paper about it. So, so somewhere a peer review process has validated these thoughts. Has validated your thoughts. Oh, because we love FODMAP. I love FODMAP, but yeah, I don't know that much about it. So tell me more. Tell us oh more. <laughs> really? Okay. We're going we're gonna to open this can of worms. Okay. So, so what is the FODMAP diet? So, so the theory behind the FODMAP diet is that these are poorly absorbed fermentable products that we ingest that because they are poorly absorbed or poorly digested by our human system, they become fodder for bacteria to digest. And when bacteria digest them, they produce gas, they produce unmeasurable osms, and they can cause symptoms in something like irritable bowel syndrome. And so One thing I will say that is indisputable about the low FODMAP diet is one, it's the low FODMAP diet. And two, it is not like the gluten-free diet. You are not supposed to follow this diet for life. Mm -hmm. And this is something that our patients often do not get told about because it is very restrictive. And so you do risk micronutrient deficiencies. So the way you're supposed to follow the low FODMAP diet is a six-week course of elimination and you must reintroduce. So you, you... kind of get rid of your symptoms, and then you add back foods that you can tolerate because otherwise you're just left eating nothing. Right. Not nothing, not not nothing, but but it is very limiting. So so that message needs to be very clear, right? The, the low yes. FODMAP diet is a temporary diet that needs to be rebuilt. Now, when you go back to the theory of the low FODMAP diet, though, it's that these things are unabsorbed or non or, or always fermented, right? And that's not true of every item on the low FODMAP list. 
So there are certain items that we definitely, like nobody has the enzyme capacity to digest. And those are the fructans and the galactans in that group, as well as the polyols. So the polyols are the sugar alcohols, sorbitol, xylitol, mannitol, I believe is in there as well. And so we cannot, those are always unmeasured osms. We cannot digest them, period. The fructans um, have a lot of uh, information in the press because they might be the actual etiology behind non-celiac wheat sensitivity because fructans are in wheat products. So those we don't have the enzymes to absorb, always fermented by bacteria. Galactans are in things like lentils. And so that's why like beans cause a lot of gas for a lot of people because nobody can digest them. But everything else, um, lactose is very dependent on your own personal ability to digest lactose, right? In some certain like ethnicities, like in in East Asian populations, like 94% of folks are lactose intolerant because we just lose that enzyme. But that's not the case for like Scandinavian folks. They hold on to their lactase for life. And so there's no reason really to eliminate lactose from their diet. Um, So you really have to be, you know, kind of specific about that. And then the other two in there, the fructose, which we kind of talked about, right? It's really fructose in excess of glucose that's going to be unabsorbed. And if you look at how much you have to eat to really get fructose in excess of glucose, it's a lot. Like you're sitting there chugging apple juice, in which case, yeah, you're probably going to get some diarrhea. <laughs> um, and the other one is going to be uh, sor- uh, sorbitol. And, and sorbitol is also something that you have to really overwhelm your body's capacity to absorb. And it's, uh, your body can do pretty well unless you're very, very sensitive. And so my, my overall non-biased thoughts are going to be, one, to limit the duration of your low FODMAP diet because it, it can work, and two, to do it with a dietitian who can really go through it. And one, that's how the studies were validated. And two, you really want someone to pay attention to what your patients are and aren't doing and make sure that they're following that diet to the, and utilizing it to the best of their capacity. You know, Matt, I, I have a little bit of a reputation to maintain. I am obviously the, the cool, bristly one among us, and I think people respect that. I feel like we probably get a lot of emails about that. Um, <laughs> and so that's why I don't think it's really anyone's business that I spend a lot of my time online looking for uh, cute pictures of cats or looking for videos of panda bears sliding down slides. I don't think that's <laughs> something anyone needs to know, and that's my business and no one else's. But Having said that, I especially don't need my internet service provider monitoring what I'm watching online and then selling that stuff to ad companies, which is why when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Uh, Paul, this is something that I I didn't know about, or maybe maybe I knew a little bit about it and I didn't know how important it was, but ExpressVPN is an app that it reroutes your interconnection through secure servers so that your internet service provider can't see the sites that you visit. And they encrypt 100% of your data. It runs seamlessly in the background. And it's available on all devices. You can use it on your phone, your computer, even on your smart TV. And one of the cool things I've heard about, which I some of the some of the residents who are a bit cooler than me, Paul, these young people, <laughs> if you will, they sure. they tell me that you can actually, because you can choose which country uh, you want to route your connection through, you can visit websites that are available in Canada or Europe or other countries. And that way, if you go to Netflix there, they might have different content than what they have in the United States. Just saying, I don't know the legalities of all that, but... <laughs> It's very cool that it just it makes it seem that you're entering the internet from these other sites and really makes your your trail so Paul you're not embarrassed by your cat videos and your you know pandas sliding down slides uh, that's no one's business you That's exactly go to right. town 
<laughs> and maybe there's some secret site in Canada that I will not have access to thanks to ExpressVPN. <laughs> so protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash curb, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash curb. expressvpn.com slash curb to learn more. So when you when you have somebody with a chronic diarrhea, you said, yeah, there's there's this huge differential diagnosis that you can go through. What practical things do you tell them that help you either figure out what's the cause or that just help you get them through this, that help help make it better? Yeah, let's go through it more of like an algorithmic approach for clinicians. So one is going to be that osmotic separation is easy. And so I do that first. Does it get better if you stop eating? And then I'm going to go for the red flags. So is there blood in your stool? Are you losing weight? And here, right, because now we're talking chronicity, that weight loss is going to be a really key component because now malignancy comes into the picture. And then I'm going to ask about surgical history because different surgeries will put you at risk for different types of diarrhea. And then here, even more than an acute uh, syndrome, you really want to do a thorough medication history. So in Ms. Stilla, for example, she's hypothyroid on levothyroxine. Is she overdosing on her synthroid? Sorry, on her levothyroxine? Is she getting too much replacement, right, which would potentially speed up her bowels? She's type 1 diabetes. Now, she probably isn't on metformin, but did someone put her on metformin for a little bit just to try it out, right? Because that that can really induce diarrhea as well. Other medications that we need to consider are really the, the SSRIs are big offenders in terms of causing diarrhea. So it needs to be kind of considered in the differential. Can I ask you a stool history question? Because I feel like you're the person to ask. I feel like you'd be excited about this. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. The floating stool, I feel like it's sort of presented very commonly. What am I, what am I to do with that? Like, is it, is this something I'm supposed to carry the residents around on my shoulders in the celebration or is that not really helpful detail? (laughs) Nothing. Um, So the floating stool is often taught as an indication of fat, but it's actually an indication of gas. So it doesn't really tell you anything except that your float your your stools have like more volume to density and so float like it, it just it just there's more gas in your stools. What you really actually want to ask right because you're asking about fatty diarrhea is are your stools greasy? And <laughs> are they difficult to flush? Like are you flushing multiple times and seeing like streaks on the toilet bowl? So yep. those are more indicative. And really the only true and in- indication of fatty malabsorption is when you see oil droplets in the stool. I was going to ask about like the oily residue on top. Yeah. What, the, what I ask about typically. When they tell me that, I'll believe that they're not absorbing fat. For uh, all the other ones, like you kind of wonder like, eh, but and floating stools, just ignore it. Okay. Maybe don't ignore it, but it, it's not, <laughs> it, it's not a reason to give anybody Creon. Just nod and move on. Right. Got it. And then what about for functional diarrhea? Uh, I know that there's fairly specific criteria. How do you ask about those? So you, you want to, so one is going to be to rule out those um, red flags, right? Those risk factors, make sure those are not present. And then in your patient who's otherwise young, healthy, and there's, uh, it's, un, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of losing my words how to phrase this because to me, to me, I get a sense of when it's about to be functional. 
Um, but that is not helpful to anyone else. So I'm trying to think about how to be helpful. Before we situation. develop our GI spiders, spidey sense. I was going to say the force. You know, it's, you, know? you got to have a superpower, right? And this is mine. So. Well, what, um, what workup might these people? What, what workup might these people go through? You know, before we start to, like, practically, you mentioned we might tell them to fast, right? We we maybe will tell them to take cut out lactose for a week. Um, we talked in the past about the skim milk test, where if they can tolerate skim milk but not whole milk, then it's the fat that's the problem for them. Let's kind of uh, we'll we'll take a more guideline based approach. Okay, so the sure. AGA has these uh, the American Gastro Society has these guidelines for how to work up functional diarrhea, which I think is a good place to to start instead of kind of what I talked about before. There are only a few tests that are recommended in the workup of functional diarrhea to make sure that there's nothing else going on in the absence of these risk factors. Okay, so one is going to be to look at you know infectious testing of those. Um, organisms we talked about earlier that could potentially cause a chronic diarrhea, giardia, strongyloides, uh, C. diff, right? Uh, those are going to be the, the big ones there. Celiac testing is actually a strong recommendation. And we haven't really talked much about celiac disease, but celiac disease causes diarrhea from a number of, um, from a variety of factors, but most is going to be that loss of absorptive surface. And so a TTG IgA would be the recommended initial screen because it is non-invasive. And then you do a total IgA along with that to make sure you're not missing celiac. And then the guidelines do recommend doing fecal calprotectin or lactoferrin testing to rule out your inflammatory causes of diarrhea. And that's going to be specific to colon inflammation. So you're really ruling out ulcerative colitis. And I, I specifically say that because you cannot fully rule out Crohn's disease. Because Crohn's disease doesn't sometimes does not impact the colon at all. And so it can actually have a negative fecal calprotectin. But if there is signs of Crohn's disease, you may, you may find other signs and symptoms like obstructive symptoms, for example. And if there is weight loss, there's bloody stools, you're having a small bowel source of diarrhea, and you're, you have high suspicion for IBD, that's when I would do imaging of the small bowel to make sure I've ruled out Crohn's disease. That, that's outside the functional testing, though, but just a caveat to remember for an IBD workup. Talking about these like fecal calprotectin and lactoferrin, they are better than CRP for an evaluation of colitis. So the CRP only has a sensitivity of less around 50% and a 73% specificity for IBD, whereas a fecal calprotectin has a 92% sensitivity and an 82% specificity. So it does much better. And it is actually a really good test for differentiating IBD from IBS. And when we kind of get into, uh, I guess this is probably outside the scope, but for a, a lot of our patients who have IBD, but who are in remission, but still have diarrhea, then that becomes really important for us to hone down. Well, is this IBD that's flaring or is this IBS on top of IBD, which is actually quite common. The third test that has recently come out. So this one was added in the 2019 AGA guidelines for workup of functional diarrhea, but is, is a, was a little controversial because this testing is not widely available. It's going to be for fecal bile acid testing. So bile acid malabsorption, we, care, or we classically think about for folks who have undergone cholecystectomy or have some sort of absorptive issue like ileocrone's disease where they're not reabsorbing their bile acids. 
So then these bile acids go into the colon and they actually cause a secretory diarrhea because they're irritating. The bile acid test um, is the gold standard is available here is going to be a 48-hour stool collection. And we often do that with a, fat, with a fat collection so that you just collect all the stool all at once. Um, and then you quantitate the total bile acids and the percentage of primary bile acids. Probably more than we need to talk about. But basically, it's a stool collection or a very specialized kind of new testing that, that's still in development. But it's, it's reasonable to think about it because you could potentially just empirically treat it um, with cholestyramine or another bile acid binder. So it's something in, important to think about. Are you saying like for certain patients with a, if you're like, maybe this is a functional diarrhea, maybe it, c- it could be related to bile acids, making it where they aren't supposed, they're not being reabsorbed. Uh, yeah. And so they're making it further than they're supposed to and causing diarrhea. You just give them an empiric trial of cholestyramine and hope it goes well. You'd have to tell her about her levothyroxine to yeah. space it out. You know, that's always the worry, I think, for me with those agents. The patient's always on something else that I'm worried about malabsorbing now because we're binding up yeah. with the cholestyramine. And that's the reason the guidelines recommend the testing. Okay. It's because if you don't have it and you just treat them for IBS, they don't respond very well. And so you, then you're risking putting their other medications in jeopardy for something that potentially won't work. So it's it for for these binders, one, they they taste really bad. Two, they're dosed very frequently. And then three, they have all these medication interactions. So it is better to make sure you have that diagnosis. However, if your clinical suspicion is high, for example, they had that cholecystectomy uh, they had that cholecystectomy and then immediately they had diarrhea or um, they've undergone bowel resection. And w- we can maybe talk about kind of the length of bowel resection where it matters. But if they've had less than 100 centimeters of bowel resected and they're having diarrhea, then it's high likelihood that they're not absorbing bile acids because their absorptive capacity is gone. And so in those patients and you don't have the testing available, it's reasonable to do an empiric trial. Do you mean if they have uh, if they have, can you talk about the bowel one more time? What was the number yeah. there, the cutoff? It was if they have more than or less than 100 centimeters. So this is um, the uh, cutoff for small bowel resection. Uh-huh. If you have less than 100 centimeters of small bowel resected, okay, you lose bile acids, but you don't lose so much that your liver can't make up for it. Mm-hmm. So what happens is your liver ends up overproducing the bile acids, and so the excess gets into the colon. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's important to make this differentiation because when you have more than 100 centimeters of bowel resected, your liver is no longer able to keep up with that capacity. So you lose so much bile acid that you actually end up with a fat malabsorption. Because now you can't, you're, you're losing that bile acid binding capacity and you don't have enough to absorb your fats. And this is important because those patients will have fat malabsorption. And if you try to give those patients a bile acid binder, their diarrhea is going to get exponentially worse because oh, wow. now you're getting you're taking away like what little bile acids they had to bind that fat. And so that 100 centimeter cutoff comes up on GI boards a lot because of that distinction because you really don't want to give them the wrong medication there. Mm. I completely misunderstood that. Uh, Me too. I think I missed that question. <laughs> <laughs> Elena, what so tell us let's get back to Miss uh, Stilla Watery. What is happening with her? So she is ready to describe her diarrhea. She has some fecal urgency. She doesn't have any incontinence. Uh, She has no abdominal pain. 
or new medications. And really, her history is also pertinent for about 10 pounds of unintentional weight loss in the last six months. And she did have a cholecystectomy, but that was three years prior. And so we've kind of talked about most of the stool testing that I think would go along with her evaluation. So the osmotic gap, working up celiac disease if that was a concern, um, sending a fecal calprotectin or lactoferrin, bile acid testing. I guess one other area would be any other tests that you would send or uh, I know you just mentioned fecal fat. So how would that be evaluated? So the one other test that I think is worth mentioning is testing for SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Because we often hear about this in the context of like a naturopathic physician who told their patient that they had bacterial overgrowth. And I know kind of I, I didn't hear very much about this diagnosis, but it is a true diagnosis. And there are certain patients who are at higher risk for bacterial overgrowth in their bowels. And the bacteria in their small bowel can end up fermenting a lot of products that would otherwise be absorbed and end up causing unmeasured osms and bloating and diarrhea. So the way you would test for that would be with a breath test or the gold standard would be endoscopy, which we can talk about later. And we can talk a little bit about the risk factors or we can put a, put a pin in it for now. Going back to the fecal fat, so actually, a spot fecal fat is is pretty decent. So you can do a spot fat with a Sudan stain, and that's got a sensitivity of 76% and a specificity of 99% for fat <sighs> being there. And if you have a lab that can actually count the fat and measure the fat globules, you're, you're getting up to like 94% sensitivity, 95% specificity, and it's got really good correlation to a quantitative fecal fat. The benefit of the quantitative fat is then you can actually weigh the stool. So that's where that like initial definition of diarrhea becomes comes into play, right? This is the only time you would weigh the stool. And you actually prove whether or not your patient is having diarrhea or not. And in a lot of our functional GI patients, it feels like they're going a lot, but their fecal weight is actually not that much, okay? So that, that's one, one reason to do it. Caveat about measuring fecal fat is that you have to remember that what like we talked about that pathophysiology, right? Speed and motility and and like absorption time matter. So if you have diarrhea because of a rapid transit from some other etiology, you're going to malabsorb fat. So just because you have fat in your stool doesn't mean that the fat was the driver of your diarrhea unless you quantitate that fat. And so they've done studies and in normal healthy individuals, if you give them laxatives, 35% of them will actually meet criteria for mild steatorrhea based on fecal fat testing. And so you really want to kind of use that stool weight. And if that stool weight is really high, then your cutoff for what is a fatty diarrhea and steatorrhea needs to go up. But that upper cutoff is going to be about 14 grams per 24 hours. Okay. And is so, a negative helpful? Like a negative qualitative fecal fat helpful? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Because I still order a qualitative mm -hmm. at first. Yeah. So let's say Miss Stilla Watery gets some testing done. She ha has a negative TTG IGA. She has a negative HIV screen that was done. Uh, she had a CDF antigen that was negative and kind of going along the pathway had normal stool osmolality. And then she did have increased fecal fat on the qualitative testing. So 
at that point, we kind of talked about ordering additional quantitative testing and what would be the next steps that you would do? And would there be any, be any use in endoscopic evaluation? Yeah, let's talk about the the situations where you really do want an endoscopic evaluation. So in anyone who's losing weight and they're not up to date on their colorectal cancer screening, you know, and they, they need to be scoped with a full colonoscopy to make sure that there's no colon cancer driving this because mild obstruction from a colon cancer can give you diarrhea, right? So so that needs to be considered. If there's any evidence of malabsorption, so iron deficiency, that positive fecal fat, their weight loss, if there's like decreased vitamin B12 or vitamin D, you do an EGD and you do duodenal biopsies because not only are you then ruling out celiac disease, you need to rule out non-celiac etiologies for malabsorption. And so those are things are those are things like Whipple's disease, right, which is more rare. But combined um, variable immunodeficiency can actually cause a celiac sprue-like picture without celiac disease. If you're doing the EGD anyways, often we'll do aspirates for bacterial overgrowth evaluation, particularly if they have bloating and they have those risk factors for bacterial overgrowth. And then if all of your initial testing is negative, but your diarrhea is still persistent and bothersome, they're up to date on colorectal testing, you want to think about a flexible sigmoidoscopy. And that's specifically to obtain random biopsies for microscopic colitis. Yeah, which I feel that diagnosis is not as rare as I might have once thought. I mean, now that I'm in practice, I've I've seen quite a few patients with it. It's it's actually quite common and you can it, it can be triggered by certain medications that are so commonly used, including statins, those SSRIs and PPIs can do it as well as NSAIDs. So that needs to be considered. I, I want to make a small note about something called omosartan-induced enteropathy, which you may or may not have heard about. But this induces a celiac sprue-like picture and is one of the things that we always ask about on the med rec. Yeah. Because it, it's so specific, one, it's really testable. And two, like when you find it and you stop it, you can really improve a patient's quality of life. Dr. Sheila Crow uh, with UCSD was on our show a long time ago and uh, told us about that, like blew my mind. I've yet to, I had one case I thought, I stopped somebody that was on almost art and that was having all sorts of weird GI stuff happening. Paul, you're, you're shaking your head. No, I don't even know if it's regional. I've never seen all my patients' medication list. I'm waiting for <laughs> the day where I can see it so I can stop it and feel like a hero, but it has yet to actually declare itself. I think it is quite regional, actually, the use. Yeah. Which I, is different than I, ACE inhibitor induced issues in the GI tract, which causes more of an angioedema picture and obstructive symptoms. I digress. Sorry, Elena. Oh, no. So it's almost certain specific. Yeah. We think that the other ARBs can do it too, but all the literature is on almost certain. I was just wondering the risk factors for small intestinal ba- bacterial o- overgrowth as well. It, it's like... It's a pretty long list, but you can break it down into things that increase bacteria presence, right? Or things that decrease motility. So whatever bacteria is there can grow. So in the things that increase bacteria presence, we're talking about PPIs, any immunocompromised patients with diabetes, patients with cirrhosis, patients who are immunosuppressed. In the stasis category, we're talking about places bacteria can hide. So diverticula in the small bowel. A RU-Y gastric bypass is a huge risk factor because not only does the blind limb of that surgery give you a pocket for bacteria growth, you also suppress gastric acid. So then that bacteria can really flourish. 
anything that slows down motility, like scleroderma, that's a big one, and um, radiation to the bowel can do it as well. And then the last thing to really keep in mind is that the reason why the small bowel doesn't have as much bacteria as the colon is because of the ileocecal valve. And so if you get rid of that valve surgically, or there's some sort of damage with Crohn's disease, then you're going to risk that bacterial reflux. And some people, as they age, their valve just becomes more incompetent. And so more bacteria get into the small bowel. So those are going to be the risk factors. Any other testing that we would think about for Miss Miss Stilla Watery? I mean, Elena, do we have more testing on her? Yes. So after her testing for fecal fat was positive and she had normal stool osmolality, she did get a fecal elastase. Uh, which was less than 100, and normal. the normal cutoff was greater than 200. So ultimately, there was concern for diagnosis of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, and you were considering what do you do next, what is this diagnosis, and should there be any type of enzyme replacement? So the um, pancreatic elastase testing is actually pretty good for pancreatic insufficiency, so that fecal elastase. You can do, so the gold standard testing is going to be the secretin stimulation test, where you give secretin an IV, which is supposed to stimulate um, the pancreas to produce all of its fluids. And you specifically measure the bicarb content in your duodenum. But in order to do this testing, you basically have to have a nurse giving the secretin. You have to have like a probe into the duodenum, and then you have to aspirate stuff <laughs> as you're like in a certain time after you've, um, you know, and, and Maybe there's fluid, maybe there's not. You do some damage, you're there for a long time. So, like, and because you need multiple kind of coordinated testing, it's often not done. You can also do it in an MRI, MRCP setting. But again, because of what's needed to do that test, it's not often done. This is kind of one of those situations where sometimes it's easier just to empirically treat them with enzyme replacement and see if they respond. So, the, the thing to remember about enzyme replacement, and I just have really two things to say about that. One is you have to give enough lipase to your patient. You can't just be like, let me try a little bit of Creon, sprinkle in with your, if you're going to try the pancreatolipase, you have to give them the appropriate dose. And that depends on the formulation. And so kind of really look to what's recommended in the specific formula of whatever compound you're using. The second thing is, the most of the pancreatic enzymes assume that you have gastric acid available to dissolve whatever outer coating and activate those um, enzymes. So if you have a patient on chronic PPI or they have had a bypass or for some reason they don't have enough gastric acid, you need to think about giving them a different already activated formula. So the Creon um, is not going to work for them and you need to consider biocase which is kind of already pre-activated enzyme. So with, with our patient, Miss Stillowatery, we, we pretty much diagnosed this was pancreatic insufficiency. So we're going to put her on the replacement therapy and hope she gets better. But let's say this workup was not fruitful. We didn't find there wasn't fat in the stool and we didn't really find an etiology despite like the full workup. How are you supportively treating patients with chronic diarrhea, especially if it's, you told us a fancy new name for functional diarrhea. What was it again? 
So it, well, the whole class of disorder got renamed oh, yeah, yeah. to disorders of the gut brain axis. Right. So, so dogma. We, we're going so with dogma, right? <laughs> dogma. So she the has a dogma. The may she, not be happy with yeah. that. So she has a disorder. We think she has a disorder of the gut brain axis of functional right. diarrhea. How are you speaking to patients about that? And what sort of uh, medical medical therapies are you leaning on or, or non-medical therapies? Yeah. So diet therapy, like we talked about is, is, well, let's back up a little bit. I talk to my patients a lot about what this diagnosis means, because a lot of the times patients will feel like, well, one, I just, they just didn't figure out what was wrong with me. And they're very unsatisfied with not having an organic etiology, or they feel like, oh, somebody told me it's just all in my head. And they made, they're made to feel like they're, they're crazy or it's, it's psychiatrically linked. And while we know that stress, anxiety, depression, yes, they are associated with these disorders, they are not somatoform disorders. They are not psychiatrically driven, right? The bowels have a nervous system, and we know objectively that there's something wrong with the way that the enteric nervous system is connecting, is connecting and communicating with the central nervous system. So my first step is always to validate the patient's to validate their pain, their diarrhea, their discomfort, and to tell them that these are conditions that we understand that they are common. We just don't have a test for it and we don't have a strong etiology for it. But that does not mean that it's in their head and it does not mean that it's not real and causing them suffering. And that really helps build a therapeutic rapport, right? Because I'm I'm validating their concerns and I'm listening to them and, and I'm letting them know that I'm willing to help them through this. So I think that is actually very important in these conditions. Next slide is I'm going to ask the patients what they prefer. Do they think that they're going to be able to follow some sort of restrictive diet? Do they have access to a dietitian? Is that something they want to do? Or would they prefer to try more medication therapy? And I'm doing a lot of the workup that we talked about to make sure right ahead of time, um, but we've already gotten there. So if they're going for diet therapy, if they have access to a dietitian, then I send them to a dietitian to work with them on the FOD, of, on the low FODMAP diet. If they don't have a dietitian or if their symptoms are manageable but bothersome, okay, where they can really kind of, it's been going on for 10, 20 years and they really just want to get it a little better or it's been going on for five years and just a little bit worse now, but they're really functioning okay with it, then I'll have them do the low FODMAP diet from what's called a, a bottoms up a, a approach or a top. Or, or, or more of no, a, I, no, I forget, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so instead of saying you get rid of everything at once, right? Instead of eliminating everything and then reintroducing, I'll, I'll give them the list of common offenders and say, okay, well, are you lactose intolerant? Why don't we get rid of that first? Why don't you try eliminating the fructan group next and seeing, you know, how your symptoms do and doing it that way where it doesn't really it doesn't put them as much at higher risk for a malabsorption or a micronutrient deficiency. Right. And then in terms of therapeutic management, loperamide is really safe. Like the FDA here has approved loperamide at doses of four milligrams four times a day. But the trials in Europe will give loperamide up to like 100 milligrams. What? Yeah. And, and it's kind of okay. Like sometimes you just need more. And even the guidelines, the AGA guidelines will say that, you know, sometimes the, the peripheral opiates are just not quite enough. And so you, I'll do loperamide. I'll do lomodal with the atropine. 
I'll do, uh, you can consider tincture of opium, although I'm, I'm more hesitant to go down that route. Octreotide can be considered to slow down motility if there is a concern that there's a motility issue, which sometimes really does get lumped with a functional issue. And clonidine actually works really well as an antidiarrheal. Um, but of course, it's going to be very limited in a lot of our patients because of the blood pressure impact. And then you, you kind of consider in the back of your mind, especially if it's a young patient, these more rare, like secretary tumors, VIPomas, you know, glucagonomas that we didn't talk about at all here, um, because clinically they're not as relevant, but I'll, I'll, you know, on the board exam, they're going to be like super relevant. So important to kind of keep that in the back of your mind in case, you know, there's a functional component, but something just doesn't feel right about the diagnosis, if that makes sense. I have I, one last plug, sorry, that in addition to the low FODMAP diet, some of the other complementary and alternative therapies have had really good evidence for irritable bowel syndrome. So yoga um, under a guided kind of clinical setting is actually did just as well as a low FODMAP diet. And gut hypnotherapy actually outperforms diet therapy in terms of length of benefit. So these patients actually do really, really well. And just a personal plug, I am now certified in hypnosis. And I'm super excited to add this to my arsenal of um, treatments for my IBS patients. That's one of the coolest things I've I've heard on this podcast. You you were you got trained in hypnosis so that you could as, train your IB so you could you could use it on your IBS patients. As of yesterday, I completed my nice. basic level training Excellent. and I have hypnotized six people today wow. just for wow. practice. <laughs> and it, it works. How many of them are but, colleagues? Uh three. Um <laughs> and they all volunteered. I didn't do any therapy with them. It was just a, you know, kind of practice and relaxation because I don't, you know, that's outside my realm of practice. They're, they're like, you know, there's a society, there's society guidelines. I abide by them. But yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a treatment option. There are centers that already have this up and running. I'm hopeful we will soon become one of them. And hmm. it's really cool. It sounds a little hokey. It's really not. And it's really cool. How long does it take? 20 hours. And I did not, sorry, this is probably digressing. I did not think that after four days, I could possibly know enough about hypnosis to actually hypnotize. It's crazy. And it's effective. And my colonoscopies today have never required so little sedation. Okay, I'm I'm done. I gotta get off I, my soapbox. I wanted to just bring it back to the. I wanted to bring it back to the loperamide just very quickly because there was some reports in the past, like two years, because it is an opioid, at least a partial opioid. I think people were trying to take like mega doses at a time, like 16 milligrams at a time, and then there was some concern for like cardiac side effects. I we we can link to this in the show notes. So I think you weren't recommending that people take like 100 milligrams at a time, but you're saying if they need to take like four milligrams multiple times a day, that should be okay. I think it was more the big like bolus at one time. People trying to get high from it was the problem, Paul. Do you remember? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that was that that was the diversion concern, not necessarily using it for a therapeutic. Um, yeah, purposes. right, right. So we should be okay there. So, and then I like I like the way that you're talking about the FODMAP diet, where it's sort of like I, I feel like it just gives like it's like empowering the patient in a way where it just gives them a bunch of options. Like these foods might cause problems, these foods less likely to cause problems, and then they can kind of be systematic about it and figure out what works for them. I think with the most chronic conditions, giving a patient a menu of options helps. 
And I, I will um, say that a lot of folks who, who are very big proponents of the FODMAP diet will tell you that the reason to do a full elimination is that there's concern that those FODMAPs interact. So that even if you may, you may absorb one, fine. If you eat that one with this other one, then the absorption might be messed up. So that's why it's, uh, it's initially presented as a full elimination. Yeah, with a, di- I, with yeah. a dietitian. Exactly. So there may be some interactions there that we don't understand. I have one other question along those lines. Uh, really about, I've had a few people ask me and then also have been like targeted on Instagram to for these at home like sensitivity tests. And I don't really know what to make of them. So how do you think about those? It's kind of like the at home like you know, genetic panels where then they come back with a gene and they're like, I'm at risk for IBD. And you're like, okay. So I, (laughs) um, there's not a lot of data is what I'll tell my patients. There's not a lot of data to support this. And so if you take this test, try it, try eliminating that food and see if it makes you feel better. You know, if it doesn't make you feel better, don't listen to the test. If it does make you feel better, wonderful. Eliminate that food. You know, I, I don't think you need to hang your hat on it if it doesn't help your patient. On that, that that's the same kind of um, line of uh, of counseling that I give to my patients about prebiotics and probiotics and symbiotics. There's not a lot of harm, but there's no good data to say this probiotic taken at this dose will really help your diarrhea. And so I tell them if they want to try it, there here are two that have some study-driven data to say this is good. So try those. If you don't want to buy a probiotic, I'll sometimes recommend kefir. I'll recommend kombucha, sauerkraut, sourdough, fermented foods, what have you, just to see if it will help because there's not a lot of downside to it. However, if they're turning to a lot of complementary or herbal medications that are not FDA regulated, I will tell them that, you know, these potentially have toxicities that I do not know about. So I can't recommend them um, and, and kind of caution them that way. And then what about some take-home points for chronic diarrhea? So in chronic diarrhea, remember that osmotic diarrhea improves with fasting. And so if that happens, look for dietary sources or potentially carbohydrate malabsorption. Your fecal calprotectin is a really good measure to distinguish inflammatory versus non-inflammatory diarrhea. Remember that fecal fats are elevated in rapid transit. So you have to do conformatory testing and you can't just hang your hat on a mild positive in a fecal fat analysis. And then your workup for when you're considering a functional diarrhea, think about ruling out celiac disease. Do your fecal calprotectin or lactoferrin. Do your bile acid testing if it's possible. And then consider endoscopy. If there is a concern for cancer, if there is a concern for malabsorption, you do it from above. And if you want to test for microscopic colitis. I think this has been fantastic. A master class on <laughs> diarrhea. The marathon of diarrhea. Sorry. <laughs> there, there could have been. Mm. It's been a crappy show. It's sure to make a splash. <laughs> oh, was. I'm going to hold back. <laughs> you can't, but can when it's you? diarrhea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been sitting on that for a while. I can do this all night. Iris, this was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I had a great time. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. I was kind of hoping you would just read the script and say crap slider, so I go, ew. Anyways, we're committed to providing you with high-value practice change knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, the one and only Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on this thing called Instagram that I still haven't figured out, Tima Karganoff on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team. That's a new one. And Chris, the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I wanted to remind the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Elena Gibson here. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're hearing now. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of not really editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and good night.